Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, Wellstart Health and Sick to Fit University. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a good and graceful life. So today's guest is Caroline Webb. She is an executive coach, an economist, and a speaker, and the author of a wonderfully entertaining and useful book, How to Have a Good Day, which is basically a cookbook on how to be an effective human being in the world. The book comes out of her extensive knowledge of behavioral science and its application in the real world. And this is you know about work, about how to be effective at work, about how to partner with other people, how to give feedback, how to receive feedback, how to set boundaries and say no, how to organize your time, all that sort of thing. And since I heard her on my friend Peter Bregman's leadership podcast, I got the book and I've been applying tons of her methodology to my health coaching. And so I wanted to talk to her specifically about how to apply her tools and recipes to the challenges that we face around improving our diet and lifestyle. So we talked a lot about the discover defend axis, which is basically how the brain tends to prioritize threat over opportunity and what that costs us and how we can rebalance the mental scales to be more effective, kind and powerful in relation to ourselves and others. Uh, we discussed these really cool techniques for making requests, dealing with conflict, giving, giving negative feedback, saying no, talking to ourselves when we're in danger of binging and embarking, embarking upon our big change goals. And we finished by talking about the Burning Man Festival, which Caroline really likes, and how to bring the festival's 10 principles, which include gifting, participation, communal effort, self-expression, immediacy, self-reliance, leave no trace, decommodification, radical inclusion, and civic responsibility into our home communities. And there is a video for today's podcast of our conversation, which you can watch at plantyourself.com slash 344, or go find it. It'll be the latest at the Plant Yourself channel on YouTube. Before we get started, a couple of quick announcements. Looks like the retreat, the Josh Howey retreat in North Carolina is full. We are opening up the doors for a March, early March, first weekend in March retreat in NOLA in North in North in New Orleans, um, Louisiana, Josh's stomping grounds. And if you're interested in that, check out sick to fit. That's the number two sick to fit dot com forward slash NOLA lowercase n o l a. 
Also, November is the next run of Wellstart Coach Training. If you're interested in becoming a wicked effective health coach, check us out at wellstartcoach.com. All right, that's the deal. So let's get to the tofu of today's show. Without further ado, Caroline Webb, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy to talk to you. You wrote this book, How to Have a Good Day. That's it's it's a, it's a fun read, and it's also basically like every page has like really useful like recipes. It's almost like a cookbook <laughs> for for life. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I did kind of write it like a manual for your mind, but I like recipes in cookbooks. That's a yes, exactly. And what I like about the idea of a recipe is that you can always deviate a little bit from what the recipe says. You know, you can you can play around with the ingredients depending on what you have in the in the kitchen. And uh, that's a little bit how real life works, right? I mean, we can take advice from a page, but we always have to make it fit into our own lives. So, so I'll take it. Yes, right. a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, like, I, I started writing down the things I wanted to talk to you about. And it's like, oh, this is on page 128. This is on page 158 to 159. It's it's like, oh, you know, you have the stories and the and the big arc. But there's also Thank like, you. okay, here's here's the three step process for this. <laughs> and yeah. you know, yeah, I, I'll tell you a secret. I actually keep a copy on my own desk because I find <laughs> it. You know, I actually find myself referring to my own advice. So there we go. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> right. Well, that's that that shows that you're a good behavioral economist. You, <laughs> you, you don't overestimate your own uh, capabilities. No, actually, the book was a lot longer initially, but I, I was trying to really focus it on the things that I truly do for myself uh, and, and the things that were really backed up across cultures and contexts. And so the book was longer originally than one of the filters was, OK, but do I walk this talk? Actually, do I actually do this yeah. myself? So that, that, that took out a few pieces of advice that otherwise sounded great. Right. Oh, my God. I'm trying to think of how long the book would be that, 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 uh, that I wrote called Things You Should Do That I Don't. <laughs> Encyclopedic. <laughs> So anyway, so so the the reason I wanted to, to talk to you, you've done, you know, you did a podcast interview with my friend Peter Bregman, which is how I first came across your work. Um, there's one word on the cover. It says to harness the power of behavioral science to transform your working life. And I would like to talk to you about transforming the rest of your life or, you know, specifically around health and healthy behaviors. And there's a lot of overlap. And obviously, you know, yeah. you, you talk about the body, um, but it's all it's all so it's in the service of being great at work, largely. Absolutely. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think you, you've you've honed in on uh, the fact that I believe mm. in the, the reality that we're one person and we bring the same person to work as we bring home. But sometimes we behave as if those two yeah. things are separate. I'm 100% with you. I think all the things that I write about, about are just as relevant when you're thinking about your family life, your community life. And actually, a lot of, the, a lot of my clients will try out whatever we're talking yeah. about as a potential behavioral change. They will try it out in their families, often with their teenage kids, first uh -huh. of all. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I've, I've seen I've seen all of this stuff work. You know, I define work quite broadly. It's whenever you're trying to get anything done. And, mm. you know, sometimes we're working on ourselves. So 
Uh, no, I'm with you. Right. So yeah, this will be a slight marketing shift um, <laughs> as, as opposed to a, an actual, you know, shift in the content. Because I, you know, as I was going through this, I thought, oh, I, here's how I could use this here. I, and, you know, there's a lot of things like the one of the cornerstones of the methodology I use to coach people about health changes is the when then plan. Right. right. Absolutely. Implementation intentions. They're just they make so much difference. I mean, yeah, you, I'm sure you say exactly mm -hmm. the same thing. 300 percent more likely to achieve something if you identify a really specific cue that mm -hmm. reminds you when you encounter that cue, then you will do the, the wonderful behavior that you want to do. Absolutely. And it's it's uh, one of the things that makes a big difference to me every day as well. Right. So you have you know, all, all the recipes, um, but you also have the first chapter or so is about the science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and so we talk about the three, the three, uh, you know, cornerstones uh, mm. upon which the whole book is built. But I especially want to talk about the the defend, discover axis. Um, okay. But like, let's can you like sh share the three and then we can uh, can dive in. Okay. Um, well, the the first idea is the two system brain, which a lot of you, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with if they've read Thinking Fast and Slow or even heard of it. That's the masterwork by Daniel Kahneman. Um, so, in just about every um, science that looks at behavior and cognition, for many years there's been this idea of the the dual process: the fact that there's some stuff that happens on automatic, and there's some stuff that we do very deliberately and consciously, and we don't. Um, in our day-to-day -day lives tend to think about the fact that these two systems are always running in parallel and they each have their strengths and their weaknesses. And, you know, a lot of the things that feel hard for us are when we are overloading the deliberate system, the bit of the brain that does things consciously, we're not recognizing its limitations. So one of the things I talk about a lot is how can you be realistic about what your deliberate system can do? How can you know how to recognize the blind spots of the automatic system so that you can create a more uh, productive and enjoyable day? Right. And, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the problems that my clients have is when things feel easy. Yeah. Right. So they're on the autopilot, but... Yeah. Uh, engaging in behaviors that the, the 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 slower system one would would not approve of. But That's right. I mean, one of the the beautiful things about the automatic system is it turns behaviors into habits. Yay! Fantastic things that you don't have to think about. But if you have to change the habit, then it's tough. You do need to bring it back out into your kind of conscious. And under the light of the deliberate system and, and do some rewiring. Absolutely. And I think it's I, I think it's wonderful the work that you do in that space. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, and, and the fact that the, the system two is kind of wired for survival and not and not nuance. And so one of the big things, and I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is the idea that the people, you know, you're the people you surround yourself with. <laughs> Like you're the, the easiest thing to do is just mirror what they're doing. And if they're all eating McDonald's and drinking Coke and sitting on the couch, yeah. then you need to engage the deliberate system to override what's what feels like what your body is telling you, like this is the path to survival is to just be part of the herd. Well, that links to the second big theme, which is the discover defend axis. And one huge function of our automatic system, which is um, you know, a real hero, keeps us uh, going from day to day is it keeps us safe. And uh, it, it's it's responsible for all the things that we're not conscious of, like, you know, the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we can put one foot in front of another. It's responsible for 
um, therefore scanning the environment around us to check out and see whether there is uh, anything that might stop us from those basic survival routines. And it's looking out for potential threats to defend you against. And so when we look at the research across, uh, again, lots of disciplines, we can see that there's a real pattern to what happens when the brain thinks that it's picked up a threat that it needs to automatically defend you against by launching a fight, flight or freeze uh, routine. And it's the fact that there is less activity in the brain's prefrontal cortex when that happens. And that means that you're basically dumber. Um, you're not able to, to bring forward your most thoughtful, reflective, nuanced, generous, grateful self mm. at that moment. You're more likely to manifest knee-jerk behavior, black and white thinking, say things you might regret later on. So when you think about when you think about the fact that your brain is constantly scanning for threats to defend you against and rewards also to seek out and discover, it's helpful to know that it's a really good idea if you keep your brain out of defensive mode and draw it towards what's rewarding in a situation. And that's really helpful when you're thinking about habit change because there's a way of thinking about habit change, which is beating yourself up for not achieving your goals. And what we've just said is that there's going to be less cognitive resources available to you if you take that approach. Right. But if you think about how you can create a path towards a, a change in habits that feels rewarding, perhaps because it feels socially rewarding. We're really, really um, uh, energized by anything which involves social contact and, and a feeling of belonging. So if you can create a tribe or a, um, a feeling of some kind of social enjoyment around a new behavior, you are so much more likely to succeed than if you set yourself a goal, don't achieve it, feel a bit crap about yourself and then beat yourself up. The brain likes to repeat things that are rewarding, not things that feel awful. <laughs> right. And especially, you know, the people that I work with very often um, are obese or have a chronic disease right. or, or are close to it. And this isn't their first rodeo, right? It's not like they suddenly woke up and said, oh, gee, I should try changing my behavior. Like right. they've got, they've done all the diets, they did all the New Year's resolutions. And so they, they come in almost like, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very sad, tragic thing. Like they'll, they'll come to the first session like a dog that has been abused, expect, yeah. expecting to be hit on the nose by the newspaper. And... Yeah already like they they feel like they need to, like they're 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 paying their dues by coming in i'm a bad person i'm terrible i i can't give up yeah. sugar i right and yeah. and that that in itself is the biggest obstacle to positive change absolutely if your if your brain is on the defensive just as you start to think about the behavior change you're going to have less mental resources at your fingertips in order to help you make that change. So I think absolutely finding a way to reframe the change in a way that's not, um, why do I want to stop doing this? I'm such a bad person, but more, what is it I'm drawn towards that's going to feel great, that's going to feel wonderful? What is it I'm going to be able to do as a result of bringing a healthier lifestyle into, into the frame? Um, rather than uh, thinking about the negatives, thinking about what the positive benefits are, I think you're, I think you're yeah. spot on. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Although so something I've actually been struggling with a little bit lately is, you know, I was taught in sort of cognitive theory that we should get people to really focus on their big why, the big thing they want to achieve. And I'm finding with a lot of people that there's this blowback effect. It's the bigger the why, the more yeah. worried more they are. 
Yeah. The higher the stakes, it's almost yeah. like now, okay, I'm going to walk across the, you know, the, 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 the skyscrapers on the a, a wire. Yeah. What are your thoughts about, you know, actually sort of lowering the stakes a little bit? Yeah. Well, we do need both. We need, um, we do need a clear sense of the personal why if we're to persist when we hit bumps in the road. We do need to feel like there's some purpose to what we're doing. We need to feel that there's that reward, and it's not just a trivial reward that it you know really matters to us. But we can also see in the way that the brain works that when you are when you're pursuing goals effectively, you're moving uh, up and down a ladder of the big picture and the small scale. And we definitely see people much more effective at achieving their goals if they've broken it down into really small, manageable steps. And again, that goes back to trying to stay out of defensive mode as you're pursuing something difficult. Because if you set yourself an enormous goal, don't achieve it, feel terrible, that is not the, the behavior you're naturally instinctively going to want to repeat. If you pick a small goal that feels almost ridiculous, but <laughs> you think, okay, no, I really could do that today. Um, maybe it's getting to the point of actually putting your sneakers on, right? And maybe mm. just leaving the house. Like, don't worry about how much you run, but just actually getting out of the house with the sneakers on the feet. Okay, well, could you do that today? Right. You do that, you feel good. You're much more likely then to go a little further the next time around. So I'm a huge fan of the teeny tiny goals and breaking things down uh, into something which feels so, so easy that, you know, you're going to feel good about yourself because you're almost certainly going to be able to do it. Right, right. So one of the themes of a lot of the, the, the recipes that you give us is this idea of, of going from defend to discover. And yeah. they're, you know, they're so elegant and beautiful. Um, and I, you know, I want to talk about them in terms of both, you know, like communicating with yourself and then with with other people. So one of them, um, you talk about the the three A's, right? Aim, attitude yeah. and attention. And you talk about that in terms of work. But I was thinking about when someone wakes up in the morning and they know like all of the triggers and potential pitfalls are in front of them from they can turn right at the light and go to the 7-Eleven and pick up a giant soda. They can walk into the break room where someone will have brought in a box of Krispy Kreme donuts for their birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like so? So as I think about that, I'm immediately hunkered down in defensive mode. How, how do you how does aim, attitude and attention kind of shift that into something more generative? Well, it gives you a sense of taking control over what it is that you experience in your day. Um, what we know is that the, the starting point, the what's top of mind for you as you go into any situation will drive what you then notice. So if you go into a situation expecting it to be awful, your brain will make sure that you perceive everything that confirms you're right. Yeah, this is this is difficult. This is awful. This is really ter terribly challenging. So one of the first things that we can do to take a bit more control and make make us feel a little bit more sed steady and rooted in ourselves is to be more mindful of how we take our state of mind into every situation. And that's where aim, attitude and assumptions come in, because then you can say, OK, well, what do I want my aim to be, knowing that that will drive what you notice? So if you want your aim to be, I'm going to notice everything that's gorgeous along this route to work that I've decided to walk instead of take, you know, take the car or whatever. Um, I'm going to really notice every little plant that's growing kind of a little out of place or every person that passes that's wearing something 
something interesting. If you decide to notice those things, you will enjoy the walk more mm. and you will notice things you wouldn't have otherwise noticed. And that is a way of taking control of your experience of, of, of life. And it goes back to the fact that, you know, your brain can't perceive everything all at once. It can only process consciously, deliberately a certain amount. So you've got a bit of a choice over what you choose to notice in the day and what you choose to just filter out and ignore. And mm. that's one of the most powerful things anyone can do, whatever the habit is you're trying to change. Yeah. And that's uh, you had a quote at the beginning of one of the chapters, I think, by Jung, is that people will will keep the, you know, whatever the unconscious drives your behavior and then people will call it fate. Like I don't like yeah. I go for a walk in the morning and I don't tell myself, hey, look for all the litter. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that turns out to be the default unless I. Yeah consciously say, hey, we're going to look for the first leaves of fall changing color today. Yeah. And, you know, back to your point about the power of taking small steps. You know, I'm one of those people that did always find it really difficult to build exercise into my day. And so I found always uh, I found walking was the way to do it for me because it felt like it was helping me get from A to B. And it was something that I could control and that was easy to do. But if I did enough of it, then it would, you know, really add up and make a make a big difference. And so each morning uh, when I was writing the book, I would go for a walk and I would uh, make it a little bit of a walking meditation. You know, mm. I'd look at my feet on the ground and I would look at the plants and I would have this sort of meditative space. Um, and yeah, it changed my way of walking, I will say, you know, and when you're living in a big city like London or New York, you're surrounded by a lot of things on the street that are not always delightful. But if you look, for the, look for the more delightful things, you're more likely to see them. Right. And, um, you know, the this idea of like, it doesn't take very long to decide to shift a perspective. Right. Like we think, well, I'm so busy and I, I could yeah. go. I've gone through like months and years without conscious uh, control over my filters. Yeah. And yet you can like it, it, it takes like a fraction of a second. Yeah. Right. Like like yeah. the, the gorilla experiment that you uh, that you cite yeah. in the book. Yeah. Well, there are there is there was the original gorilla experiment, which now, of course, the, the title gives away the secret, but where. Yeah bunch of people playing basketball uh, in front of a actually a bank of elevators, half of them mm. in black T-shirts, half of them in white T-shirts. The uh, Halfway through the game, uh, a gorilla comes on. It's actually a woman in a gorilla suit, and she beats her chest, and then she walks off. <laughs> and when you have people watch the video and you give them the task of counting the number of passes that the people in the white T-shirts make, half the people then don't see the gorilla because they're so they've decided that their aim is to focus on counting the passes quite reasonably because that's what the researchers yeah. have asked them to do right. but that's how powerful the brain's filtering devices are and so if we're capable of missing gorillas uh if we're capable of of, of missing such big things right in front of our field of vision of course we can miss tiny things like a person smiling at us or uh, you know a chance to kind of go for a walk on a sunny day um, of course, we're going to miss little things like that if we haven't decided to look out for them. So that's that's why it's such a powerful thing to decide at the beginning of the day what you want to notice, where you want your attention to go. Yeah. So so, so instead of saying, OK, I'm going to avoid all of the junk food and all of the temptations to change the aim to I'm going to seek opportunities for to make healthy choices. 
And then that that so that aim then um, spills over into attitude. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's also evidence specifically on the topic that you're raising, which is that when you frame a goal as um, a toward goal, something which is I'm going to do, I want more of this, I want more of this benefit, people are more likely to achieve it, uh, unless it's a really super simple goal, they're more likely to achieve it when it's framed like that than if they say, right, I want to avoid this, I want to do less of that. Um, mm. I think it's it is about the defensive uh, the shift out of defensive mode into discovery mode as you start to think about this wonderful reward that you might get from from pursuing a different behavior. So yeah, right. And you mentioned when you are in discovery mode and your your attention then goes there, you said like you literally become smarter. Well, yeah. So it, when you're in defensive mode, we, we can definitely see people in a brain scan have less activity in the part of the brain that's responsible for more sophisticated behavior. Um, and, you know, that's why I mean, everybody listening to this, I'm sure will have had a moment where you're put on the spot and your mind goes blank. and You think, oh, my God, I'm an idiot. No, you're not. <laughs> your brain is just diverting mental energy to a defensive response to keep you safe. Um, so, you know, it's not unreasonable to say right now there's a big threat to your self-worth and social standing. So, you know, you need to focus on things that will keep you safe. Uh, it's just unfortunate that in the modern world that that also makes our mind go blank or <laughs> makes us blurt out something silly. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so the more you can get yourself refocused on the rewards versus the threats in the situation, the more that's been shown to uh, help you achieve complex goals. I mean, if you're running from a burning building, fine, focus on the fire and getting away from it. But if you're thinking about creating a complex behavior shift that takes a little while to put in place, you're better off with a with a um, a goal that focuses on the rewards. Right. Now, but at the same time, you're not saying that we should become totally positive, right? You talk about the value of mental contrasting. Yeah. So how, yeah. how do you which which is basically um, like you think about the goals and then the obstacles that you're likely to encounter on the way to achieving them? How, how do you help people notice the obstacles without flipping back into defensiveness? That's an excellent question. Yeah. So the, so research has shown that um, your real ideal goal setting routine is Think about what the ideal situation is. Then think about what might get in the way of it. Then design yourself a little cue that will remind you what you're going to do to get over that little road bump when you hit it. Um, so I think I think that when you start from a point of saying, okay, this goal is exciting, but it's manageable, um, then you're in good shape. If you pick a goal that's actually pretty bonkers, um, then you, you're more likely to, to end up with a slightly, um, slightly less robust hit rate. And that's <laughs> been shown in the research too, that actually, much as we love to have the big, hairy, audacious goals, we do need to break them down so that we've got something that feels sort of achievable in the near term. So if you're starting with a goal that's kind of achievable, um, then you're less likely to get knocked off balance by saying, okay, well, what could get in the way? Hmm. How, how do you help people know how what to what to trust in terms hmm. of like, the, you know, like sometimes I'll have a feeling like, oh, this is exciting and I'm not quite sure or I'm not paying enough attention to ooh, this. You know, this actually doesn't feel that good. And I'm trying to override, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, how, how do you guide people to uh, to an, a, a, a good internal GPS about that sort of thing? Hmm. 
Can you give me an example? Um, yeah. So I have, you know, this goal. Um, I'm going to run a 50 mile race in a couple oh. of months. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, I'm excited. But or even anything like like, oh, I want to uh, here's a business opportunity. And like, oh, I should do this. But also there's this feeling. And I'm so used to overriding those feelings that I might not notice or not want to notice that it's a little bit of, oh, this doesn't, you know, yeah. like, an, you know, the, the sort of like helping people parse and weigh intuition and, and thought. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that one of the things I, I learned in my 20s was to stop holding on to goals beyond the point where it was reasonable to pursue them. You know, I was so <laughs> focused on like setting a goal and then achieving it that um, I wasn't really attending to how things felt here and now. Mm. Um, you know, I was so fixed on one idea of what my career should be, uh, which was working as an economist uh, for global organizations like the IMF or the World Bank. I mean, I don't know. I, I really had this sort of very fixed idea of what it was like to be, um, a, you know, to contribute what, what my career should be. And it took a while for me to acknowledge the fact that I didn't actually much love academic economics as mm. the subject stood right there and then. And so, you know, I, I know sometimes there is this tension between a big goal that you've held for yourself and then the reality of how it feels on the ground. I think, you know, there's no single answer, no simple answer. I think you just have to start to develop some self-awareness so that um, you can keep track of how something is feeling from day to day. And if you notice that really something is not getting better, um, then you might say to yourself, okay, so what is there in this goal that I truly love and that I really want to hold on to and that feel, still feels right to me given my strengths, uh, my sources of joy and passion and so forth? And what is it that I might choose to let go of? But then, you know, if you're actually taking a moment to journal at the end of the, each day and reflect on what was good or what was bad, you might notice that it's just on occasions that you start to feel a bit mm. about the, you know, you might notice it's actually, I don't know, maybe it's always Mondays, maybe it's always the days when it's raining. Uh -huh. um, you might start to see another pattern. So I think it is about developing self-awareness and starting to be as analytical about yourself as you are about, you know, I don't know, presentation you might make at work. Hmm. So I have, I have a weird question for you, okay. which is you mentioned, like when you're writing this book, you'd go for these walks. Um, I'm in the middle of a book by Barbara Tversky, Amos's widow called Mind in Motion. And she's ta she's talking about like how movement is, is the basis of thought. Did you did you find when you were walking that you had a different relationship with your mind? Yeah, I. I yes. And there is so much evidence out there on the way that physical activity uh, boosts our focus and our mood so quickly. I mean, as you know, all the uh, you know um, uh, the work on the the way that it affects the the neurotransmitters in our brain, the way it boosts blood supply to the brain, um, and I did find that exactly. In fact, I would say that I deployed it. Um, I had a a really rickety elliptical trainer which was so cheap and barely held together. Um, but, you know, but I, it was what I had and I had it in the, uh, you know, in, in my home and I was working from home, working on the book. And so if I got stuck, I would actually deliberately get on the elliptical trainer for 15 minutes and then I would 
notice that my mind was clearer and then I'd be able to find the way through. So yeah, mm. 100%. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's, that's great to know because, you know, we have, I have this, this intuition, it wasn't really research based, but that like when I, you know, when I try to help people lose weight, the science is all about it's the food. The, 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 the exercise doesn't matter very much. It's maybe 10 to 20%, but it's really the food choices. And yet the people who took up exercise did much better behaviorally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's, I, I think all the research su suggests that that's absolutely right in terms of managing the stress of a behavior change. You know, we see that moving physically uh, will help with, I mean, it doesn't even have to be, intense exercise although there's lo lovely evidence around high intensity interval training mm -hmm. i became very interested in studies that showed that really even quite tiny amounts of uh aerobic activity you know a few minutes walk here or there uh started to show some benefits in the way that you know we feel about ourselves and, and our ability to focus and to retain information so you know i think back to the thing you said right at the beginning as well about small goals yeah you know two minutes is better than nothing you mm -hmm. know one minute is better than nothing right. <laughs> 30 seconds is better than nothing <laughs> right and mathematically you can add the word infinitely to all of those right. <laughs> yeah yeah right. no, absolutely so I, I i think that while food may be so much part of the part of the story for the people that you work with um exercise is working on something else it's working on your mind um mm. Uh, you know, I mean, it may also be working on your body for, for certain people, depending on what, what their starting point is. But yeah, it's, it's a mental tool for me, for sure. Mm. So what, one of the, the tools that you share that I actually, I find really hard to use, and I try to use it because it feels so um, counterintuitive is the positive no. Oh, yeah. And you talk about the positive no in terms of like other people. I try to do it with myself as well. Can you describe the positive no? Because it's like, I don't, you know, yeah. how, however people will use this, it's, it's such an amazing tool. Oh, thank you. Well, I, it's not my tool. It's William Murray's tool. Um, mm -hmm. what, I, uh, what I do is just try and explain it, why it works so well in the context of um, the discovery, defend, uh, defensive mode uh, uh, dichotomy. So, um, you know, when you're, you need so let me start first by saying every yes is a no to something else so there is this sense that unless you've found a way to bend the space-time continuum you're, you know you've got a certain amount of hours in the day and if you say yes to one thing then you are saying no to another so with that in mind you know we we have all sorts of habits and routines things that are already loaded in our calendar and we're saying yes to them effectively because we're doing them um, and to say no, we often don't like saying no to people because we feel like they're going to be upset with us and, and we're, going to, we're yeah. going to come up as a bad person. Well, it's, it's, um, it's the same as saying no to a donut. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Right. Like, that's, like in, in this moment, yeah. I don't want yeah. to, I don't want to feel the discomfort of that conversation. Right. Right. And, you know, and imagine that the donut has a little soul and, you know, and you don't want to say no to the donut and then, oh my God. Um, so we often avoid saying no to things that, um, that feel easy to say yes to, even when we want to say yes to, uh, want to say no to them. So, um, so the positive no says, counterintuitively instead of starting with the no and saying oh i'm so sorry donut i can't possibly eat you like i just you know you get wrapped up in your sorry and the negativity of that um instead you start by 
reconfirming to yourself and also the person you're speaking to what it is you're saying yes to. I mean, first of all, you thank them for the request if it's a <laughs> request that's come in from a real person rather than a donut. Right. So uh, let's, maybe so- maybe let's not confuse things with a donut yet. <laughs> So, I don't know. I'm loving it. I'm really so, loving it. Um, so, so somebody, somebody had just, you know, somebody's written to me and asked me to be on the a panel to to review all the uh, applications to speak at next year's conference. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, that would be fun. And then I'm thinking, oh, that will be hell, <laughs> right? Yeah. So well, and maybe there's a specific meeting that clashes with the time that you have started going to the gym and you're managing to kind of get that into your day. And, and then this, this request comes in. So first of all, you thank the person for the request, right? And we often forget to do that. When we're a bit stressed about saying no. Um, and then we talk about uh, what it is we're saying yes to. I'm, um, I'm making a commitment to building a, a healthier lifestyle and have managed to get into a routine uh, which ha- involves a certain amount of exercise every day. Um, uh, as a result, I'm having to reprioritize and rejig some of my calendar. Um, and uh, some of it's a bit awkward to do, um, but I'm, I'm trying to stay firm when I think about my, you know, my goal. Um, so I, I have to say I can't come to the meeting at that particular time. Um, then you think about, well, is there anything else I can offer? And frankly, even just saying, you know, I hope you understand. Um, uh, I hope, you know, let me help you find someone else to, to kind of take on this role can be enough. But the point is to, instead of leading with, I'm so sorry, I can't do this. You lead with, I'm making a positive decision at the moment to spend more time trying to, you know, get my health in, in order. Um, you, you, la- you lead in a different way with yourself. You make yourself feel more in control. And you also help the other person focus on the, the positive goal that you're pursuing first before mm-hmm. hearing the negativity of the fact that they can't have you exactly when they want. And my experience with this is that um, what you're doing is effectively putting both of you, taking both of you out of defensive mode a little bit. Because you're reminding yourself what you're aiming for, and you're you're actually making them think, oh, that's really great that they're actually trying to get fit. Yeah, because one of the things I realized is when I say no the the usual way, and my defensiveness often feels like bullying, like oh, like how you know, like, like in a very very sneaky yucky way. It's like I I am mad at you for making me feel guilty. And so and so I'm gonna like, without even noticing it, some little tentacles of aggression, passive aggression are going to come into it. And then we're, we're both neither of us understands because nothing overt has happened. Right? Exactly. That's so right. And you have this sort of slight sense of tension when really, you know, if you think about it, it's nice to have been asked. I mean, great. Um, it's also great that you're making a positive choice to invest in your health. That's also great. It does mean that you can't go to the meeting at this particular time. But here is something else that you might be able to suggest instead. Mm-hmm. And it's just a different type of conversation. You're absolutely right that when we feel all tied up with our, our stress and the tension of pulling, being pulled between two different goals, that you know we, we convey that um, in quite subliminal ways sometimes. Well, not so subliminal. <laughs> I'm so busy. I can't possibly do this. Yes. I mean, it does, it does come across and it's better to take control and be, you know, positive about what it is you're doing instead. Right. And, and then to be, you know, to be able to apply that to, let's say not that maybe not the donut with the soul, but like your host at a party or, 
or a coworker offering you something yes. to say to, to start out with, oh, thank you so much for, for like, you know, not excluding me for thinking of yes. me. Yes. And without, you know, then you have to be a little bit more careful because very often, you know, what we're up to can sound preachy or I'm better than you. But, you yeah. know, to use something like my doctor or my health coach or right, something that doesn't make them feel less than. Yeah. Yeah. But, th but then then can 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 make it a positive interaction, even if you have rejected their offer. Yeah, yeah absolutely. St you know, be very, very grateful for the offer and then say I'm making a, a, a big push at the moment to reduce the amount of sugar in my in my diet. So I'm looking at that and thinking I really want it, but I, I'm going to make a decision not to have it just today. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. it's just it's a different it's a different interaction. Um, and you're right that, you know, when you're talking about what it is you're prioritizing, there are ways of doing it that are um, quite sanctimonious, quite sort of, you know, what about, you know, look at me. And actually, you don't have to do it like that. You can just say, I'm, I'm making a decision because of this. And, uh, and as you say, you can appeal to an outside authority like a doctor if you need mm -hmm. to. Um, but I, I think I think you're right. There's a really graceful way of doing doing the decline of the donut. <laughs> All right. Now, the the other thing I wanted to go into a little bit is so people don't just have, you know, the one off donut pusher, but they have the spouse who is terrified that, you know, so the person who's working with me is now going to change everything. We're not going to go out anymore. We're not going to spend time together anymore. Right. Our relation. You know, I feel threatened in our relationship. I feel threatened that you're going to look at my food and think that I'm a terrible person. And so there you have these um, these techniques like one of them I love is to sort of find common ground. Yes, absolutely. Right. Can this you talk, is one of my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is so hard. Yeah, I love it, though. It works so well in so many different ways. So um, we when we disagree with someone or we're pointing a little bit in different directions, it's so easy for the small difference that uh, that is between us to overcome everything in our relationship. Um, and one of the most powerful things you can do is to start by articulating the other person's point of view as if you really like it. Mm. And then to outline ooh, ooh, as if you really basics. like it, as if you really like it. So they couldn't, you, so they couldn't you, put it better themselves. You know, what's hilarious yeah. is, is uh, it, it says it that way in the book. And I never saw that. Oh, isn't that funny? There's <laughs> <laughs> your gorilla. Yeah, you just you just surprised me by saying that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So take, well, I have to take go. it up I and I take my own advice. <laughs> yeah. So um, so yeah, as if you, as if you know, they couldn't put it better themselves. So, you know, you can talk about the fact that, uh, yeah, suppose suppose I want to give up alcohol for a while, um, but I don't want to I don't want to impose that on everybody else around me. Um, so you might say, I know you probably feel that you know, as I'm about to give up alcohol for a while, I might become very, very fixated on not having alcohol in my field of vision and not, you know, and, and that, you know, this might affect our comfortable winding down every evening. Um, where we agree is that, you know, both of us don't, we, we both of us treasure this winding down in the evening together. You know, we are absolutely not going to lose that. That mm. is absolutely. And then once you've, once you've done those two things, you've made the other person feel heard and you've established your common ground. Uh, it's so much easier then to have a conversation about 
and how then can we, you know, can we make it easier uh, to, to resist the temptation? And uh, the reason it works so nicely is because it makes, uh, it makes, you, it reminds you that there's more that you agree on than that you disagree on. And that mm. sense of like perhaps coming together at the end of the day and, and hanging out together and un- unwinding together with your other half, um, you know, that is that is a pretty core, cool, fantastic thing to share with the person. You don't want to let that be overrun by some question of whether you're having a glass of wine or not. There's so much usually that binds us together with someone we're disagreeing with that we just ignore when we're focused on the disagreement. Right. And the other thing that I, I think about there is when someone disagrees with me, Initially, when I'm in my defensive state, I, yeah. I, I can think of nothing good about their perspective whatsoever. <laughs> and so yes. when, when Carolyn Webb forces me to do that, my brain yeah. shifts. It has to shift into discover. It's like, OK, yeah. this is like a Sudoku. There's no you know, there's only spaces, but I've got to figure out like what is where are they coming from? And at the minute I do that, it's like this whole different Christmas yeah. tree of, of, of neurons lights up. I mean, frankly, yes, I, there are about five or six steps to that particular technique. Frankly, if you do the first one, then <laughs> you're basically there, which is, you know, yes, exp- expressing the other person's point of view as if you really liked it. I've seen that happen in, um, in teams where there's been two fundamentally different perspectives on the right way to approach a project. And, you know, each side does that for the other side's point of view. And then you're like, okay, well, it's obvious we should do X, Y, Z, you know, because that just drops out so quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's true because everybody's then out of defensive mode. They, th- they can think more clearly and creatively about a way forward. So the same goes for ourselves at home with our personal habits. Right. Now, what, one of the killer tools that I love is so, so, so someone, you know, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers are doing something you really don't like. Mm. And they're, they're, they're sabotaging you and maybe they realize it and maybe they don't and you've got to give them feedback on it. And so you, oh, have, you have brain friendly feedback, which yes. like, I, tr- I tried this the first time I tried this, I was like, this is so manipulative. How <laughs> there's no way anyone's going to fall for this. And yeah. It worked perfectly. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So brain-friendly feedback is, um, is recognizing a couple of things. First of all, we're much more attuned to negatives, to threats, than we are to rewards. And so if you've got a reward the same size as a threat that's in front of you, your brain is going to focus totally on the threat. So if you have a piece of positive feedback and a piece of negative feedback, uh, your negative feedback is almost always going to blank out whatever positive feedback is there. You uh-huh. know, it's just tuned to pay more attention to something dangerous. Um, and then the other thing that happens is that when we give positive feedback, we're often really vague. You know, we'll say, oh, you're great. You're fantastic. I really, you know, it's just wonderful. And then we'll say, but there's this one thing that I really need you to stop doing. And the problem with that is our brains are really tuned to also remember specifics rather than vague Mm. abstractions. And so even more you focus on this one specific thing that people want you to change rather than, you know, this general wash of positive feedback. So the trick is to be really, really crisp and clear and specific about something you like about what the person is doing. So what I liked about what you did was X because it had the effect of why. And um, what would make me like it even more is if you did Z. Mm. 
And yeah, it, it is. Uh, it, it means that they really hear the positive. They're less on the defensive when they then hear things that, uh, that you'd like to tweet. So how did you use it? Mind me asking. Uh, no, I, I I used it with my kids. Yay! <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and it just it, like you could see how the wall didn't go up. Yeah, there you go. Right. There you go. And you know, we we do. I I have to say, I have actually. Um, I've made requests to people, including family members, on how to give me feedback. Mm. Uh, to say, uh, remember to say some specific things that you like before you pile in with the thing that you know you want me to change. You know, you can be quite open with it. It still works, even uh-huh. when you're <laughs> even when you're asking for it. It still works. It stops you. It stops you shutting down. Yeah, uh, well, I was. Yeah, I mean, we're you know, uh, the system two it doesn't care what we think; it's going to do its thing. Like earlier, you said to me, you said in this interview, "Oh, that's a really good question," and I caught myself going, "Oh, I'm so happy!" <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> right? And you know, actually, from day to day, most of us don't get that much appreciation. Um, mm-hmm. And there's as much to learn from something that someone has noticed that you're good at. Um, as there is from something that you're not doing so well. And, you know, you want to have the good stuff amplified as as much as you want the negative stuff called out. And as I say, our general, uh, the, the pitfall that we usually run into is the fact that we're very vague about our positive feedback. And there's so much benefit to being specific and saying, I really like the way that you asked that question because da, 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 da. Right. Um, it's a big difference. And I think you talk about it in the book and there's I've read in other places that actually positive feedback is more useful to us. Than- well, it's it, so there is something interesting about um, strengths. I mean, if something is if we're doing something really badly, you know, there, there is a good chance we might need to fix it. If it's something that's getting in the way of our ability to function from day to day. Um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't put some effort in. You know, I've worked with, I've worked with one or two people who um, have chronic lateness problem. You know, they they're working on all this sort of complex stuff as as leaders as managers, but they're basically just late for every meeting. And sometimes you just have to fix the basics mm, because yeah. actually it has this huge knock on effect on everything else. So I'm not saying don't fix the things that are really problematic, but I am saying that um, you get. There's something magical about focusing on your strengths and figuring out how to play to them more fully. Um, And it's the fact that um, if you are using your strengths to figure out how to uh, tackle a new problem, you're less likely to be on the defensive as you're approaching the problem because you're thinking about how to use something you already know you're good at. Mm. So, you know, I remember um, one time, a couple of times I started, you know, big new projects, big new initiatives, and I... Um, first time around, I did it in a very sort of traditional way of kind of putting together the, the world's largest PowerPoint deck with, you know, lo- loads and loads of slides and pages and like really building the case. And, you know, I, I got it done, but it was a real drain. And then the next time I launched a big project, I said, OK, well, what is it I'm actually good at? Um, and not just good at, but actually seem to like actually enjoy and get energy from. And I thought, well, I'm quite good at bringing together people around a shared goal. And instead of doing all the work myself 
uh, and driving, you know, hard through the night to put together a massive, massive presentation myself, I, I brought a bunch of people together who seemed interested in the topic. And I said, okay, how should we do this? Mm. And the, the energy that it unleashed um, in everybody was delightful. Um, it wasn't just that I didn't have to do all the work. It was genuinely just tackling a problem in a different way that was playing to my strengths. And I felt oh, I got more yeah. energy from it as a result. And I think when we're thinking about personal habits that we want to change it's the same you know if if we're if we're very social people then thinking about um you know going for a run with uh, someone else if we are very reflective people thinking about going for a walk in a park you know where we get to look at natural beauty just work yeah. with the brain you know work with the grain yeah. Well, and often when I'm coaching someone and they'll they'll, they'll feel stuck and inadequate, yeah. I'll I'll pivot and ask them like, "What do you do for a living?" And they'll say something like, "I'm a patent attorney." And like, "Oh, really? What's what's that like?" And what 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 are you good at there? What are, what are the right? Yeah. And then and inevitably, you know, something like, "Oh, I I'm really good at, you know, um seeing patterns or I'm really yeah. good at, at sort of sequential thinking. And it's exactly the thing that they could have applied to their. Perfect. I love that. I love that. And then they can see, OK, well, actually, the, the patterns of when I feel like exercising, OK, I can I can look back across the last month and I can derive uh, I can see, therefore, what it is I need to do more of. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And they get so excited, like, oh, I, you know, I had this thing in my toolbox. I just okay. I didn't realize it. I love that. I love that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, just a great recipe is just to think, OK, well, what do I think gives me, you know, unusual amounts of energy that gives me, you know, it could be a strength. It could be a sort of some, a source of um, joy or a source of, you know, sense of meaning and purpose. And think about how you can connect the difficult thing to that mm -hmm. strength or that, that joy or that cause that uh, that you care about. And you'll yeah, you'll just lighten the load on yourself quite significantly. Right. So I got a couple more recipes and then I want to talk about Burning Man. Okay. Um, so one thing I found really, really useful um, is with with clients is affect labeling. Oh, yeah. All right. So so yeah. what is so it's, what is it and yeah. how, what how do you use it and why why does it work? So affect is psychologists word for emotion. So feelings and mm -hmm. The, the power of it is uh, that when we label how we're feeling, if we do it crisply and uh, not in a way that, you know, is a wallowing kind of labeling, but we say, OK, I'm feeling frustrated because uh, I was uh, getting really good at getting on this kind of going for a walk in the morning uh, routine. And then last week I fell off the wagon. And you name the frustration and you name the reason that it makes you feel frustrated. I thought I was doing great and now I wonder whether I've got it in me. Mm. Just taking a moment to acknowledge that in you and notice it, um, it quietens down your mind. It tells your mind that, uh, okay, I've, I've got the message. And it makes it easier for you to then move on and think about solutions. And that's not just fine words. You can see, again, in a brain scan, you can see, um, you can measure people's um, stress markers, like the sweat on their hands or the, their pulse rate. They're less stressed about a situation if they've labeled it and named it. And that's what we call it, isn't it, in everyday life. We say naming it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, uh, you know, one really nice way of doing it is taking a piece of paper and just writing out. I feel really frustrated because usually by the time you've got to the end of the first three sentences, you're, you're feeling a bit more chill and a bit better able to see a way forward. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you're, you're allowing some part to speak that was, was worried that it wasn't being heard, right? Like yeah. the baby is crying and nobody picks it up, so it's going to cry louder. Yes, uh, yes. But you're also, se you're also separating from from it a little bit it's almost well, it's almost like system one is looking at system two there's there's like a a distance yes and distancing in itself has been shown to be a great technique for reducing stress which is to say okay what am i going to think about this when i look at this from a different perspective whether it's like what am i going to think about this when i look back on this in a year um what would i think about this if i were my you know wisest friend looking in on this um what would my best self think about this anything which kind of picks you up from the position you're in and drops you in a different perspective giving you distance basically reduces your brain's sense of there being a threat it just takes you a bit further away and that as we know when your brain is off the defensive you're better able to think clearly hmm. so absolutely these techniques are really fantastic when when people feel like something's not going quite right uh -huh. so something i haven't used yet because i didn't remember it until i just reread the book is talking to yourself and i'm, yeah. I'm curious like because it feels intuitively like it'd be better for me to say to myself Oh, Howard, you're craving chocolate as opposed to I'm craving chocolate. Right? Like, how, how, yeah. how, how does that work? Yeah, no, I mean, but that's exactly right. So first person is I'm craving chocolate. Um, then if you want to get some distance from that, you could say, oh, Caroline is craving chocolate because. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's a, there are some funny little studies that have shown that actually just getting that extra degree of distance, uh, you know, is has its own power. Mm. But frankly, even just labeling it for yourself is going to be, you know, is going to be a useful thing to do. Mm. It's, it's also extra fun if you write it on a piece of paper and then screw up the piece of paper and throw it in the trash. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so is it something like your brain doesn't think it's in the line of fire? Yes, anymore? it's about reducing the sense of threat. It's reducing the immediacy of the sense of threat. Um, uh, and as you say, you know, it's about saying, OK, I've heard you. I've, <laughs> I, I understand there's a problem. I've, I've got it. I've heard mm. you very much. Um, uh, that's how affect labeling works. And then distancing works by sort of physically removing you from your being the one in the in the line of fire. Absolutely. Mm. And I guess the, 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 the part of the brain that does fight or flight or freeze really well doesn't do these other things very well at all. So it's almost like we're we're pushing the button to put our, our neocortex back online. Yeah, I, I think absolutely what you're trying to do is um, is reduce the sense of threat so that all of your uh, prefrontal cortex can can reboot. Uh, now, a neuroscientist listening to that would say, "No, that's not at all how it works." But yeah. we do. We do. I mean, the, the crude message is basically there's less activity in the prefrontal cortex when we're threatened, uh, when we can refocus, uh, reduce the sense of threat, and refocus on potential rewards in a situation. Then we're able to think more clearly and more fully, as we do when we're at our best. Gotcha. All right. So I want to finish with Burning Man. And oh, yeah. I want, I want to um, just uh, contextualize it in terms of, I think a lot about community because the people I work with, the reason they're suffering is a breakdown of community, right? So, by and large. 
that, yeah. you know, both that they don't have the kind of support that we live in this weird, fractured, busy, busy world where everyone's we're all on our phones, but we, we don't yeah. have conversations and the communities that they do have around them are antagonistic towards their goals in function, if not in in spirit. And mm -hmm. so you wrote this piece about first of all, you, you say you, you cop to loving Burning Man and yes. and then and trying to recreate it without the sand and the desert and the climate, um, you know, yeah. so Tell, tell the story. Yeah. Talk about it. Well, I, listen, I think a lot of people, if, if people have heard of Burning Man, then they often think it's some kind of naked rave. And um, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's, uh, it's a temporary city. It's an experiment in, in building a community that is uh, founded on 10 principles that are really all kind of very deeply grounded in behavioral science, it turns out. I mean, when Larry mm. Harvey first wrote down the 10 principles, I don't think he'd read, read any... Um, articles by behavioral economists or neuroscientists, but it's pretty solid. So uh, principles like gifting, the fact that um, you're, the idea is that it's not barter, you bring enough for yourself, but you bring enough to give. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether that's a helping hand, a pair of hands, you know, when you see someone kind of trying to put up a tent or whether it's uh, bringing some multivitamins to give out to people to help them deal with uh, the physical harshness of the desert. I mean, the, the point is to think about what it is that you can give. And of course, we know the evidence on that is really solid. It's a, one of the best ways you can boost your own well-being is to think about what can I give to other people. So, you know, and there are there are nine other of those principles that um, the idea is that the city is built around those those principles. So it's a fascinating immersion in all the things that behavioral scientists say. In principle, this is how we can be most fully expressed as human beings if we can live in that way. And of course, you know, a Burning Man, there are any number of different versions of it, just like any city. There are people who do yoga all day. There are people who do ultra marathons all day. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Really, yeah. you know, this is the stuff that doesn't make it into the newspapers because it's not, you know, it's not dramatic. Um, but, you know, the truth is that there is, you know, any number of different ways to live a good life. Um, but there are some principles that do tie us together in a community that's that's strong and, and, and stable. Gotcha. So when I was when I was rereading this, and I, I just I just finished reading Ursula K. Le Guin's 1974 novel, The Dispossessed, which oh, I, right. I, I don't know if you've read it. No, um, I haven't. But, yeah. It's it's I think she calls it like an ambiguous utopia. But there's this society that is is basically Burning Man, gifting participation. There's no money. It's yeah. you know it's a radical anarchy. Um, and what you like, OK, so that's science fiction. So mm. but you did an experiment where you're like, can we like Burning Man is basically like science fiction. It's a it's a kind of an artificial construct. Can yeah. I can I take this without the flaming giraffes and yeah. and everything else and yeah. and grow communities? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I will say Burning Man is not anarchy at all. It's it's incredibly well organized, um, but it is. Mostly, it's mostly done by volunteers. So there is this self-organizing aspect to it, for right. sure. Right. For and, sure. That's, and that's what, you know, yeah. that's, that's how they define anarchy in, in, in this book, is that it's, yeah. it's you know, it's self-organized. Right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's the opposite of chaos. It's not chaos in general. It's, it's extremely well organized. So we try to be very well organized with our, uh, with our experiment. We said, okay, well, look, if we know these principles of... Um, uh, of gifting, of uh, 
making conversation with strangers, if we know that there's really great evidence, the fact that um, even a minuscule interaction with someone you don't know tends to give you a boost, a sense of connectedness to humanity. And, you know, the, the effect is disproportionate. It's kind of interesting research. Um, then what does that tell us about what we might do if we were going out for an evening with friends? How would we take those principles into, you know, what, what we're doing? And so we thought, okay, well, we'll get together. There's six of us. We, we made... We made gifts to give out. We bought some really basic hats and gloves. It was winter in uh, in London, which is where I'm from originally, as you can tell from my accent. Um, and we we decorated them, um, and we thought, okay, well, we'll go out and we'll give out uh, hot chocolate and mulled wine, and also um, and also these hats and gloves, and we'll see we'll see what happens. We decided not to take any money, so we just took our travel cards. So you know. A lot of cities will have some kind of public transportation system, so London does, and we just took out our Oyster cards, as they're called here. Um, we didn't take phones. That was, that was a hell of a thing. Um, yeah, we took one phone as an emergency. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we were really sort of immediacy, in the moment, all of that. Um, and you would have thought that a winter in London, where people are kind of perhaps a little closed, um, Perhaps you don't think of Brits as the most chatty, like uh-huh. open of people. Uh, it worked even in London in November. So, yeah, it was really remarkable. We ended up having gorgeous conversations with so many people and it was very uplifting. And then we came back, uh, came back home and compared notes and um, felt really great about humanity and the state of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because when I when I read about that, I started having ideas like what I could what could I do in my street? Yeah, right? absolutely. That could totally change because I don't know most of my neighbors. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't want you to think that. I mean, you know, we were nervous. We didn't. You know, we would we were nervous of going up to strangers and saying, "Would you like some hot chocolate?" Or you know, "Would you like a hat?" There was, you know, there was this sort of, you know, this little mm. gut to get over. And of course, not everybody is going to want a hat or, you know, a drink, uh, but that's OK. Um, the fact is, the majority of people are just, wow, OK, uh, that's, that's nice. How much? Do, yeah, sure. What do I owe you for it? Uh-huh. Nothing. What? And then you get into the conversation and you have a chat about the fact they've just moved to London and they're not sure about the city. And, and then you end up having a lovely um, lovely chat and a lovely connection. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely would recommend, even if you don't fancy the idea of going to Burning Man, it's a, it's a really fun thing to do to see whether you can even just put some of that on as a as a costume for a, for an hour or two. Because, mm. you know, we, we have a large garden and we had a um, an unmanageable zucchini harvest this year. So <laughs> so my wife would take, you know, baskets of the zucchini, go to the, you know, the, the lawn out in, in, our, in the town center and just say, excuse me, as people would pass by and, you know, the and people would, you know, would yeah. brace for, yes. you know, you're going to sell me something. Are you crazy? Are you yeah. going to try to scam me? Do you want me to sign yeah. a petition? And then they would sort of, you know, say, would you like a zucchini? And then like, <laughs> <laughs> at that point, people would so it's like their defenses would melt. But it's yes. so it's so interesting to see that, like the default for us in communal space is defend and not discover. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, my experience of playing around with this was that it takes very little to overcome. And it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. I love the zucchini idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was not much else to do. And then I, th I felt that the other day I was I was walking at the market and then um, I heard this this like young boy's voice say, excuse me, mister. And I'm like, my first my first reaction is like, yeah. I, I don't want to get involved. Yeah. And then but I, you know, I forced myself to turn around and he's like this sweet little kid with a clipboard explaining why our local energy company needs to clean up its act and why we need more uh, regulatory oversight, like 10 years old. I'm oh. like, oh, you're like little Greta. You're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, that's wonderful and i find i mean if if nothing else that so the the thing i have in my back pocket as a as a as an opening gambit is to say how's your day going mm. or how's your evening going and that's it and i had a conversation with someone a security guard last week and that's how i you know i said how's your evening going and initially he did the seizing up and um, but he answered the question. And then he said, you know, how's your evening going? And then we ended up in a conversation about how we each met our spouses. And I mean, it was really, yeah, it, it was very affirming. Yeah. And I think and I think of this as like putting pennies into the commons. Yeah, that's right. a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Right. Like like if, if we like we've we've depleted our commons of 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 trust, of mutual of mutuality. And it doesn't take that much, as you say, to start predisposing people to community again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's um, work done on this by Gillian Sandstrom, who's one of the leading researchers in this area. Uh, and it's about the power of um, relationships or interactions we have with weak ties. So not even the people who are close to us, not mm. even the people that are close to us, but just the, the sense of the, the passing community that, you know, is around us every single day. And she's, uh, she's actually got a scavenger hunt game at the moment, which people can look up and play Ooh. if they want to try out some of this stuff of, you know, playing around with being a little bold in talking to talking to strangers for the first time. Oh, um, if, you, if you can find me the link for that, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. Speak, so. Speaking of speaking of show notes, um, the book is called How to Have a Good Day by Caroline Webb. If people want to follow you and learn more about you, where can they do that? Well, there's a lovely website, which is called howtohaveagoodday.com. And they will find um, lots of resources there, actually. If they click the resources tab, there's loads of articles on lots of topics and actually a bunch of tools as well, uh, which can you know be used separate from the book or in parallel with the book. So that's a really yeah. nice way to take a look. And if they're really curious about me, 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 then they can go to carolineweb.co. .co? Okay. Yes. Yeah, there are lots of Caroline Webbs in the world. <laughs> Oddly enough, not available. So I'm, a, I'm like a kind of funky Silicon Valley startup. I'm a dot co. Oh, okay. <laughs> At least you're not a dot io or something. Yeah. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what, yeah. what are you working on these days? Well, my day job is not that dissimilar to yours. I'm working with, with individuals and, and helping them uh, thrive and helping them figure out how to be better leaders in my case to, to help them mm. 
lead their organizations more effectively, but also manage themselves as professionals. So that's uh, that, that's the work that I do from day to day. Um, and sometimes I give workshops for larger groups of people and speeches to even larger groups of people. Um, but that's uh, yeah, that's that's the day. That's where the that's where the book came out of was fifteen uh-huh. years of doing that. So gotcha. Yeah. Great. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for the for the book. It is it is so helpful and empowering. It's it's you know it, it is it is like a cookbook for for like a healthy soul. Thank you. That, uh, that, I'm going to write that down. That is that is a beautiful uh, endorsement. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, and thanks for taking the time today. And I look forward to meeting you at some point. My pleasure. Absolutely. Right. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode, that conversation as much as I did and as much as I've loved Caroline's work and have found it so useful with myself for my own life, for family, for my own professional development and, of course, for working with clients. I recommend the book Unconditionally How to Have a Good Day by Caroline Webb. You can get it on audio. You can uh, get the hardcover. Just do it. Just even if you just like look things up in the index when you need them, like like a cookbook or a home repair manual. And it's great for the podcast when someone's book sales go up after being on it. That's something that I can then tell other authors to pique their interest in humming and having a conversation with me. So if you'd like to support the mission of this show, the simplest way is to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review and some kind words that helps uh, the rankings apparently a great deal. So uh, we can reach other people with this message. You can also become a sustaining member, I guess, uh, a patron of the show. And you can do that at plantyourself.com. Just look for the Patreon link in the right sidebar or search patreon.com for Plant Yourself. And an ongoing monthly contribution helps keep this show and pretty much everything I do free for everybody. You can also share this episode and others with uh, friends and family and social media acquaintances. You can grab a screenshot, put it up there on Facebook and, and Instahuha, and uh, let other people know that this might be something worth their time. What else is going on? Um, in the next couple of weeks, I got some interesting guests. They're actually um, well-start coaches. And one of them, Elizabeth Bell, who I hope to be featuring next week, uh, was actually a well-start client. And she has an amazing story, which I captured with the intent of just turning it into a, a video testimonial. But we, we went on for quite a while. And the story is so inspiring and so instructive that I decided to turn it into a podcast episode as well. And following that, Ron Tibbs. Uh, who is one of our well-start coaches and has an amazing life story from the Marines to um, a policeman in California to various forms of addiction to uh, pretty, pretty close to fatal liver disease and to back to where he is now helping other people and living a, a vibrant life. So those two are coming up. Uh, got a bunch of other ones in the hopper. I, I just uh, recorded a, a, a kitchen video with uh, Kim Campbell, who is the chef behind the Plant Pure Meals, and that's going to be coming out in a few weeks. And lots more stuff. Well, what else is going on? Garden news. We've uh, we had rain. We had our first day of rain in like a month, a couple of days ago. And so things are, are looking greener. Um, we got some buggies eating some of our new greens. So we'll have to uh, sprinkle some diatomaceous earth on them 
And hopefully the bugs have not learned about flip flops. And so they will stay away so they don't cut their little buggy feet um, in running news. Eh, slowly, slowly, but surely getting back to the thing. Um, I've been for the last couple of weeks doing one once a week doing 800s, which is uh, you know, roughly half a well, almost exactly half a mile. And I'm trying to do them at an eight minute pace. And last week I did um, five of those. Um, this past week I did seven. And so I'll increase by one or two a week and hopefully be able to get to a, a time where I can run an entire 10 miler at an eight minute pace. All right. Thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more of his lovely choral music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. As in Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elspeth, Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julian Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ramda Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby. Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacert, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabek, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton. Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedekar, Deezer Tuzinwak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis of Viva L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle. Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelin, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leedon, Patty DiBartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer. Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, and Connie Rogers for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. 
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzawa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.